What's up, Legends? On this episode of the podcast, I was privileged to speak with Ed Hughes, who served nearly 30 years as director of the Counseling Center. Ed is considered a legend among his peers for pioneering the treatment field in a time when the disease model of addiction was not widely accepted. Ed's compassion and ability to communicate the scientific nuances of drug addiction as the healthcare issue that it is has positioned the organization in a way that's providing incredible opportunities for the recovery community they serve. After speaking with Ed, one thing's very clear. The recovery community here in Portsmouth plays a vital role in the success of our community, and we can expect to see our city's physical, social, and economic health improve if we can only help these good people be successful in re-entering the community. And of course, every single episode of this has been made possible by Glockner Chevrolet. They're a huge part of the good things that are happening here in Portsmouth. So when you or anyone you know is ready to make a vehicle purchase, make sure to visit glockner.com to get started. Enjoy the episode. Bernard Glockner died in 1876. It is recalled that the funeral cortege was the largest ever seen in the city. This is the Local Legends Podcast. We're live on the Local Edges podcast. This is episode 15, and today I'm joined by Ed Hughes. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Thank you. To make sure all our listeners are, are up to speed on our guest today, give us the Wikipedia page summary of yourself. Well, uh, probably uh, the most important thing is that uh, I spent uh, nearly 30 years working uh, the counseling center and uh, Compass Community Health and Compass Point Housing. Those are organizations. Of course, I go back to the, uh, to the beginning of the Scioto County Counseling Center and uh, and I retired uh, from uh, from that uh, just a little over two years ago. So, uh, and still continue to be, you know, a part of that. I'm on the board of directors, but uh, it's been uh, probably the most um, uh, inspiring part of the last two or three years has been to watch that agencies, those agencies continue to grow in, in my absence and uh, watch the new leadership do such a great job. Mm, absolutely. And I mean, you guys are pretty active community partners. So I, I feel like more and more people are knowing who the counseling center is every day. Um, yes. They're doing a fantastic job of sp- spreading the mission, but just, just to define it, what is the Counseling Center and what, what is the organization's core focus? Well, it might be good to kind of look at, uh, explain that by kind of showing a little bit of the history. Uh, back in 1980, the Scioto County Counseling Center was created as a nonprofit organization to provide outpatient counseling services to people with alcohol and other drug addictions. Uh, very small agency. Um, uh, uh, you know, I'm talking less than 10 employees for a significant period of time. Um, and then I came to the agency along with uh, a very good friend of mine, Rick Calvin. I was the director. He was the clinical director in 1989. And uh, from that point, the agency started trying to respond to the, the uh, various growing needs of people with alcohol and other drug addictions. And uh, um, from there, it, it grew into the agency that it is now, which includes uh, 
again, uh, a statewide approach to treating people uh, with, um, with addiction issues, providing housing, uh, primary health care through Compass Community Health. Uh, so its, its major focus has been starting with trying to treat people with alcohol and drug addictions, but then moving into trying to address all the needs that an individual uh, has in terms of being able to be successful in recovery. Um, and all along the way, we have been, uh, uh, again, inspired by people who are in recovery uh, and who are able to and have been able to express to uh, the staff at the counseling center what their continuing needs are and then trying to remove obstacles or roadblocks to people being able to have access to services. But it has turned into an organization that is, addre is addressing the total health needs of, of an individual, uh, along with life needs such as housing, vocational job opportunities. Um, and you know, that is what I think has, has set them apart. Uh, and almost all of that has come from listening to what clients have expressed to them as, as needs and, and continued barriers to, you know, becoming a fully uh, a citizen that can embrace their community and be a, a functioning and helpful part of the community. Yeah, and we can see that example that you gave that they're kind of like expanding their service into a full like lifestyle recovery through whether it be TCC Works that they launched last year or their active fitness program, those kind of things. Yes. That really, I would agree. I'm not sure. Um, it, you guys have always been very progressive from the beginning, it seems. And I'm well. That uh, that progressive nature actually started uh, with the founding of the agency. Uh, the first director of the Scioto County Counseling Center was Rembert Glass, and. Uh, um, Rem was a person in recovery, and he was uh, also, but uh, he was um, he was a college professor who had found his way into recovery, and then had a took that interest in research and and broadening his understanding of what alcoholism and addiction was about, and as a result, was a was on the forefront of uh, being able to describe to people what addiction as a disease, as an actual illness. And in 1980, that was quite a divergence from being able to see addiction as a mental health problem or as a weakness of character or some form of immoral behavior. Uh, and Rim, uh, again, was uh, not only embraced the disease model, but he, he researched it and understood it. And then how do you then take that in and create services address addressing it as a disease. So uh, we were very fortunate in this area. There was uh, all kinds of uh, uh, not necessarily research, but embracing what research was going on and then being able to integrate that into the services that are taking place. So the counseling center was getting these great outcomes in terms of people recovering uh, because of very much up-to-date research that uh, was available nationally, but was being implemented here in Southern Ohio. Mm. 
Absolutely. I think before we can truly understand the role that recovery plays and not only like saving lives, but reviving our community at scale, we have to ask or better understand the nature of the problem. So you had hinted on it and talked about how you guys had this kind of divergent thought process back when you became director and uh, when, what, the T- what TCC was founded on. But can you talk to us about the disease model of addiction? Yes. Um, and it really is a fairly simple idea with, you know, perhaps a lot of very complicated science. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the basic idea is, is that uh, when you introduce a drug to, uh, whether it be alcohol or uh, actually any drug uh, uh, into the human body, not everyone's body reacts to that drug the same way. Hmm. Uh, if you'll if you'll watch commercials for any drug on television, the last ten seconds is spent telling you all the various side effects that that, that could be experienced as a result of taking this drug. Hmm. Now, those side effects don't happen to everyone. Uh, again, they usually happen to a minority of people, and a side effect of ethanol, which is in all alcohol products, or opiates, whether it be a medication uh, like uh, uh, Lortabs or uh, Vicodin or uh, Oxycontin, uh, a side effect to op- uh, an opiate drug is addiction mm. for some people. And again, the question that was always raised is why does an alcoholic start to drink in the first place? Why does a drug addict start to take drugs in the first place? The answer to that question is they start to take this drug or start to drink for the same reasons everybody does. So you have the majority, vast majority of people in the United States have experimented with alcohol, but only a certain percentage of those people will have experience alcoholism or the side effect, the negative side effect of that drug. And the majority of people who take an opiate, whether they, and the majority of people will take an opiate at some point in time because they'll have a surgery or an injury or something. The majority of people who take an opiate do not become addicted to it. Mm. But there are some people who do. And the answer to why they become addicted has always been, well, they must be morally weak, you know, they've got other problems, there's some flaw in that person to start with. And I've always rejected that idea that there was a flaw in that person to begin with. Because what we see is, is that some people have a different physiological reaction to a drug. And that could include any of these drugs that we see, whether it be a blood pressure medication or, uh, or something to reduce your cholesterol, people experience side effects. And one of the side effects for alcohol and other addictive drugs is addiction. Mm. But it's selectively addictive, and it's primarily based upon a person's brain chemical reaction to that drug. Mm. And. I remember a specific talk that I had listened to of yours where you had described um, someone's reaction to a drug as like an allergy, essentially, that it's, that it really is. Yes. uh, As an allergy, that's kind of a, and the, uh, it's interesting that was described, that word was used 
by Alcoholics Anonymous in 1935. Mm. And this was a group of people and some doctors who they didn't have access to the, to, you know, uh, brain scans like we have today. You know, they were just essentially, you know, looking at analogies in terms of what are the common characteristics of people who have alcoholism. And they were comparing themselves because they, they were recovering alcoholics, but they were also listening to a very small group of doctors uh, that were trying to treat alcoholics. And the word that they used was that they said, it seems like an allergy, like an allergic reaction, that some people take this drug and this is what they experience. Now, if you're allergic to penicillin, everyone would just accept the fact that some people are allergic to penicillin. When they take that drug, the majority of people have a very good outcome, some people don't. And this is essentially exactly the same thing. A person, some people's body react, bodies react to uh, addictive substances differently. And they have an experience with that that is abnormal to the general population which makes it very difficult for the general population to understand what's happening to the addicted person. But it also makes it very difficult for the addicted person to understand what's happening to them because they look around and the majority of people are not experiencing what they're experiencing. So the addicted person comes up with the same conclusion as the general population. Well, I must be weak. I must be stupid. I must, uh, I must just be immoral. I must be just the worst person ever because I can't control my drinking. I can't control my drug use. Uh, and of course, they're going to get a lot of reinforcement for that because that's kind of the general opinion that most people have. How could you be so stupid? How could you be so selfish? How could you be so irresponsible? But the reality is, is this person is experiencing a physiological reaction that is essentially impacting the most important part of their physical body and that is their mind mm. so that the very place where we would hope that our our uh we would be able to say hey this is a problem this is i i need to stop this i need to i need to find help that is the actual place that is being most impacted and that is my judgment my ability to make decisions uh, and my mind, my brain actually starts to work in the opposite direction, coming up with rationalizations and justifications of how my drug use um, can be controlled, or it's not that bad, minimizing. Uh, again, you know, we rely upon our, our minds to guide us in the right direction. Uh, the addicted person, right from the beginning of their drug use, their brain is in the process of being taken hostage. And it's being taken hostage by the drug, which is having such a powerful reaction for a select number of people, not everyone. Most people, when they drink or use a drug, it's not that big a deal. Mm. It is not that powerful. It is not that, uh, that it, it is not that wonderful. And in fact, for a lot of people, they ex with alcohol, they experience the sedative effect, which isn't all that, that, isn't all that uh, uh, good. And for people that take opiates, the majority of people that take opiates describe it as either one of two things. It helped my pain, and then I, my pain stopped and I quit taking it, or I didn't like the way it felt. 
it felt yeah. bad. It's a very small minority of people who get this other experience that I always kind of refer to as the wow, the brain chemistry wow experience. And when the brain experiences something that powerful, then it wants more of it and it will start to essentially sabotage the other thinking that might be saying, maybe this isn't a good thing for me. Mm. Fantastic explanation, Ed. And what I want to know is like, how did you um, approach kind of changing that stigma instead of it being a moral failing that this is a healthcare issue? Um, I'm sure that it initially, especially at the point where it was really divergent from common thoughts, that it was probably pretty challenging. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it was because we were, I mean, we had to, uh, at every step of the way, we had to, uh, you know, we were confronted by how the general public viewed addiction, which would have been in a very negative, stigmatized way, but also how the potential client felt about their addiction because they, they had... You know, one of the things that addiction does is essentially strips you of your self-esteem and, and, uh, and how, you know, you, you start to develop a very negative sense of yourself uh, before you ever get to a point of asking for help. The yeah. very first program that we initiated at the counseling center was in uh, 1982 because we, we started looking at our client population. Again, we were a very small staff. There was uh, seven, eight, nine of us and we were providing outpatient services, and we were, you know, we were noticing that we had very few female clients. The majority of our clients were male, and so we started kind of looking at that, and stigma was the number one issue. Um, women were hesitant to seek treatment because of what it said and what the community felt about an alcoholic woman. It also, they also had children, so it made it very difficult to access treatment. Uh, like, what do I do with my kids? And uh, so our very first effort was to create a residential program for women where they could bring their children into treatment with them. Wow. And so that became Stepping Stone House, which has been an enormously successful program and well-known throughout the state of Ohio, and, and they've had... Uh, they were able to uh, serve pregnant women, uh, and we've had, I don't know how many, 250 drug-free babies born to women at Stepping Stone House, but stigma was the big issue that we were trying to address uh, by able to create a residential environment, a kind of a community uh, of women helping women uh, to recover and to get them out of their home environments, which oftentimes were awful. Uh, and then also provide them the opportunity to not be separated from their children uh, and or to be able to come pregnant and be able to be treated by people who cared, who were not judgmental, uh, many of whom had experienced their own addiction and recovery. Uh, so probably the, the number one thing we did was to create a staff that uh, was themselves in recovery or who were very uh, considerate and compassionate toward people who were trying to recover, who were willing to understand addiction as a disease and all the ugliness that it presents initially. Because even though 
as a counselor, I might be looking at the symptoms of addiction as being, you know, how does this person's physical body respond to the drug? What kind of effect has the drug had on them? The rest of the community, including the person and their family, they're dealing with another set of characteristics of addiction that's very ugly. Manipulation, dishonesty, irresponsibility, uh, violence. And so, you know, there was reason that that stigma got applied to people is because there are characteristics of this disease that are very ugly, but they are not who the person is. They're characteristics of the disease. They're symptomatic of the illness and what it does to a person. And to be able to bring people together in community where they can come, a person that is perhaps in their first day of wanting to, to, to look at their addiction and perhaps get help and to see other people that already know their story, mm. already so know I, exactly what they've experienced before they've ever had to say anything. Of course. Of that course. was and, critical. Mm. And well, then that begs the question then, like what is kind of first steps or when someone enters the program, what is been your philosophy and action steps to help change the symptoms. Yes. And I think that, uh, you know, the, the education process for somebody with an addiction begins, you know, at the very first contact that you have with them, mm. but it takes a while. You know, if I've been spending years perhaps looking at myself as, as this horrible person, and I've been lying about the fact that I'm a horrible person because mm. of my addiction, it's going to take me time to be able to embrace the idea that I've got an illness rather than just a character flaw, set of character flaws. It's going to take me time to trust other people that are really not judging me. So in that interim period of time, uh, before I can actually start to embrace these ideas of addiction as an illness, I need to be treated as someone who has an illness. There, there needs to be a very consistent message. And so, you know, that begins from day one with people who are able to be compassionate and understanding, but direct, very direct in terms of, you know, here are the things that we have to do to recover. Uh, here are the things that we have to do to address this issue. Um, you know, here's the changes that you have to make in your life in order to, to be successful. Uh, to be able to work with families to educate them because families get drawn into this uh, in a way that is uh, very problematic. Uh, some family members will wash their hands of this individual, but other family members will get on the roller coaster with them in terms of rescuing behaviors and enabling behaviors, and, and it becomes a family dynamic of. of um, uh, denial and uh, uh, being complicit almost in this person getting sicker and sicker. Um, families are great at helping someone through a problem. That's what families do. It's the, it is the fabric of our society is family members helping family members through difficult times. Mm. And that works wonderfully unless it's addiction. If yeah. it's addiction, those same skills that, that families use to try and provide help financially or to provide comfort or whatever it may be has the opposite effect. 
with addiction. Mm-hmm. So right from the beginning, we try to, uh, you know, try to engage family members so that they understand this process that's going to unfold and what their better role would be in terms of that. At some point in the recovery process, or perhaps I should say just in, in, uh, in the abstinence process where somebody's not using and not drinking, uh, their mind will start, their brain will start to heal and they will start to get a beginning of a foothold in terms of being able to use their brain to counteract the messages that their brain is giving them that is being controlled by the addiction. And, but that takes some time. Uh, usually we're looking at about several months before a person can really start to hear this message that you have an illness. Mm. And to treat your illness, here are the things that we need to do, which includes uh, uh, mental health services for some people. Uh, it includes health care services for everyone. All of our people that are coming with addictions, they also have corresponding health care concerns that need to be addressed. Um, and it, it also includes a lot of lifestyle issues, like you mentioned, you know, where am I going to live? Where's a safe place to live? You know, how am I going to ever get a job? How am I ever going to be uh, able to be a part of my community again? Hmm. Let's talk about that. I mean, obviously, this has large implications on the effect that people with this disease have on the community and the the way the community has an effect on them, right? And just like they're exactly like uh, the relationship between someone that's in recovery and someone that's not, right? But what? role do you think recovery plays in reviving our community as a whole? Well, I think that because we have been so greatly impacted, especially by the opiate uh, epidemic. In fact, you know, our tri-state area was ground zero for the opiate epidemic. So it has been horrible here in terms of the number of people that have become addicted and the number of families and then it has been devastating in terms of the, uh, the social impact that it has had in terms of uh, impacting employers, trying to empl- find employees, uh, communities in terms of housing. When we've seen whole sections of our, our communities that have, you know, have, uh, have declined simply because there's no one there to maintain the housing. There's you know, uh, there's uh, all the legal ramifications, all the imp- the overwhelming uh, numbers of people that have found their way into the criminal justice system as a result of opiate addiction. So the, sh- the sheer number of people that have been impacted and the economic impact that it has had means that to uh, improve housing, employment, uh, job performance, productivity, we have to address the recovering community. We have to address people with addiction. We have to address people with addiction that have gone to prison and now have returned back to our community, not better for that experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, now they're dealing with the fact that they've had felonies, which makes it more difficult to get a job. Now they're, now they're dealing with the fact that it's very difficult to get a driver's license, to pay my fines that I've, I've accumulated as a result of my addiction. So, you know, I, I think that in some communities around the nation, it might be one of those things to where, well, there's enough employees, there's enough employers, there's, 
there's not this impact to our housing or our criminal justice system. Perhaps we can just let this whole uh, uh, impacted number of our community just fall by the wayside. But we can't do that here. We need those people. We, we need those people that are coming into recovery. We need people who are addicted now to be citizens in our community because we need them as employees. We need them as people who are going to revive our housing community. Uh, we need people that are going to be able to, uh, to take on these new jobs with a new economy if our economy improves, because if our economy improves, people start moving up the ladder in terms of jobs, which leaves vacancies and openings for people that need to, be, need to fill these jobs. And without this group of folks finding their way into our economy, our, our community is not going, to, not going to do well. It's not going to survive. Uh, we are not going to be successful. We need these folks to be able to be active participants in our community. We also need, since healthcare, addiction treatment is healthcare, healthcare is probably the biggest industry in our community. When you think about hospitals and doctors and, and nursing homes and assisted living facilities uh, and addiction treatment uh, that the counseling the counseling center employs over 300 people. Uh, when you look at that in terms of the industry, the healthcare industry of our community, it is the heart and soul of our economy. Mm. So we need for these healthcare providers to be successful, which means that we need to, for them to have access to people who are sick. And a lot of the people who are sick in our community are struggling to get access because of their addiction. Mm. So we need to clear that path by treating people who have addiction and embracing those people back into our community because they're going to be, again, they're going to be improving our healthcare uh, status. One of the things that doesn't get talked about very much is that our tri-state area, in particular our area, has some of the worst health indicators in the nation. People with obesity and diabetes and high blood pressure and hep C numbers, you know, and as to an employer, that makes us a very unattractive uh, work population. Mm. So I'm going to start a business in Portsmouth, and I'm going to have to take on the healthcare burden of people who are not healthy. Mm. So we need to improve the healthcare of our community. We need to improve access to healthcare and make people healthier so that that will then relate to our improving economy and create opportunities for employers not to have that burden of a very sick uh, em employee base. And removing addiction, helping people with addiction clears a, makes a very clear path for all of that to happen. Mm, absolutely. I came to Portsmouth through Shawnee State University and like just had this real curiosity about how Portsmouth became what it is in like the times that we're living through, especially with the crisis. So it started with, you know, reading Sam Quinones's book and under understanding a little more about how we got to this place. And then you all as a community partner just started being more and more informative and uh, public about what you were doing. TCC is an amazing community partner. And from the perspective of someone who's gotten the community to buy into their vision, can you speak a little bit more on how you've like gotten the community on board here? One of the uh, early things that we, uh, 
one, well, one of the ways is as, as, as becoming an employer. So as we became an employer, employing more people, then more people started understanding what it was that we were doing as a mission, mm. you know, what we were accomplishing. So, you know, when we're employing 100 people within the community, we're impacting a lot of people's lives uh, because of their families and their extended families and people that know their families. So those people all became messengers uh, in terms of what was going on. And of course, in the last four or five years, the agency's grown even bigger. So as by being an employer uh, and being a part of your community in terms of that, you are able to, uh, you know, help educate the community about, you know, here's who we are and here's what we do and here's how important it is. And look at what we're accomplishing mm. because everyone sees the addicted person in their disease but very few people see the addicted person in recovery mm. because they become a citizen and they're not wearing a badge that says I'm in recovery, you know, of course, but of course. they don't real, they don't realize when they go to the restaurant or to the hospital or any place, they're coming in contact with people in recovery. They just don't know that, but they can know that as a result of the work that the counseling center does through families and through their employees. The other thing is that very early on, we tried to be a good community partner. You know, we tried to, our, our clients were the first to want to volunteer to be a part of a community event, to help clean up streets, to help be a part of, you know, any kind of function or celebration that was going on within the community. Uh, they wanted to be a part of that. And as a result of being a part of that, they were able to feel like a normal citizen, but they were also able to show other people, people who didn't know very much about recovery, what it was like. To, to interact with somebody who was in recovery, which turns out it was like interacting with any other person that was a of part course, of our, our of community and our city. There might be a few more tattoos, there might be a few of it, you know, but at the same time, they started to be able to realize that, hey, this person in recovery uh, is a worthwhile person, is a person that we want to be associated with, is a person that we want to be a part. We want them as a neighbor. Uh, and we had to go through a lot of growing pains with a lot of that mm -hmm. you know we've had a lot we've created transitional housing uh you know there the counseling center is one of the largest residential providers in the state of ohio and as a result of that you know we had to be a part of our neighborhoods so we may have you know stepping stone house on second street the marsh house on fourth street and we wanted to be a good neighbor. We wanted to have the best looking properties. We wanted our clients to be respectful of neighbors. And that has grown over time in terms of the number of people that come in contact with our folks in a neighborhood setting. And because of the diligence of the counseling center to, you know, to be a good neighbor, then, you know, we have integrated more and more and people have become more and more educated about, you know, the, you know, to, about how they need personally to address their own feelings of stigma toward our client population. Of course, of course. And you guys are certainly giving them the tools to do that. I mean, like one of my favorite examples of that is what you're doing at the Hawk Fitness Center and obviously yes. Max and them are very vocal about it. And it's just so cool to some, to see someone even as simple as just lift something heavy and instill that confidence in themselves that kind of give them momentum to, to continue to change their life. And we've, and we've known this for a long time. In fact, uh, there was a book that was published in the early 80s called Eating Right to Live Sober. 
Mm. And that, you know, and the author was talking about, you know, uh, that the person in recovery needs to be attentive to their nutrition. Uh, you know, we can't live on cigarettes, coffee, and donuts. It, you know, that is a path to relapse for a person that is in recovery. Uh, we have to be attentive to exercise and our physical well-being. So that was a part of the counseling center right from the very beginning. But it was very difficult for us to integrate all of those ideas uh, because we just didn't have the resources at that time. Uh, we could communicate it kind of one-on-one or in a class kind of setting, but we didn't have a gym to take anybody to. Uh, you know, we didn't have fitness instructors that could actually engage people, but they do now. Uh, yeah. That's been one of the most uh, uh, rewarding things for me to watch as I, you know, transitioned out of leadership at the counseling center to see the new leadership actually make these things happen for the clients in a very big way, you know, where we actually have a gymnasium. We actually, we have a vocational uh, training program. Uh, you know, we have access to creating uh, jobs for people. These were all things that we knew were vital, but we struggled to make them happen in the early days. And then that every person that comes into treatment gets connected to a primary health care provider, because now we can address these health, these secondary health care issues that if they're not addressed, they will become a barrier to recovery for this individual. If I, you know, if I'm not addressing my blood pressure, my diabetes, if I'm if I'm, if I'm, you know, hep C positive and worried to death about that, you know, it's going to be a barrier to recovery. So when we were able to create Compass Community Health and for Compass Community Health to become a federally qualified healthcare center, that connected us to the community again, because half of the patients at Compass Community Health are community patients. They're not a part of the counseling center. You know, so you have this now, this very effective uh, integrated healthcare program that is also now able to talk to people about this illness of addiction has other consequences and they're health related and we want to address those. But guess what? Our whole community has healthcare problems that are not being addressed and the Compass Community Health has, has made a significant uh, movement to be able to help those people who are struggling. And again, it's Physical, physical health in all its uh, aspects. And uh, again, they've done a wonderful job of, of creating those opportunities here recently. Absolutely. And, and on that topic, Ed, of like this full lifestyle change and like full picture of what it, what it means to be a healthy person. Yes. The, the premise of this podcast is to give our listeners, for them to be able to hear from amazing small town people like yourself and from there, learn how to replicate maybe similar successes in their own life. So if you're saying maybe in a one-on-one scenario with someone in recovery, what advice would you give that person about rejoining the workforce and finding their own successful career path? Are you talking about people in recovery or people? Yes. Yes. So someone, someone that's currently in recovery and obviously they're about to take those next steps. Um, What's that look like and what advice would you give them? Well, I, I think the, the, the first thing is to stay with the process uh, because there, there is a lengthy process to, to all of this. There's a lengthy process to becoming uh, free of the desire to use alcohol or drugs, even though you might be abstinent 
the desire still may be there. So there's a lengthy process to that. There's a lengthy process to getting healthy again. Uh, you know, it's not going to be one or two doctor's visits to, to deal with your diabetes. This might be a, a lengthy process. Mm -hmm. um, becoming able to enter the workforce again may be a lengthy process. And what we have seen for people coming to the counseling center, and we, again, we have people coming from, you know, all over a large region, is that you have, I mean, we've had people come to the counseling center for, to get into recovery who have a master's degree. You know, and we may not worry too much about them getting a job somewhere down the road because they, you know, they, they have skills. They have already established skills. Now, maybe they've screwed all that up and don't have very good employer references as a result, and they're going to need help with that. But we also have people that never have even gotten to the starting line, uh, especially with the opiate addiction. We have seen that that uh, in our local community, opiate addiction starts has started with such a young age that we have people that have not graduated from high school, or if they did, they really don't have the skills that they should have had when they graduated. They've not really had any kind of job. Uh, so for those people, they need a lot more involvement in vocational preparation. You know, they, it might be a GED. It might be uh, you know, we need to teach you how to apply for a job online. We'll help you with that. Uh, we may need to teach you how to dress, how to be a part of an, of an employee team if you're going to work at a fast food restaurant. So for some people, it's very, very basic. And the hardest thing is to stay with the process because we all get, you know, we all want a quick answer to all of our, all of our problems. You know, we, we want kind of a immediate uh, uh, reward for anything that we, you know, we've accomplished. And the problem with, for some folks, is that this is going to take time. And they'd have to be happy with this, the, these slow um, rewards and these, uh, these small steps that are going to lead them where they want to be. And for people with addiction, there is, you know, there is always that, place in the brain that is saying, uh, I know a faster path, and a faster path is just to use again, or I'm never going to accomplish what, you know, I, I want to. I'm never going to have anything. I've, I've fallen by the wayside. I'm, I'm too far behind everybody else, and, you know, just stay connected with all of that, and probably one of the resources that helps with that more than anything as a person starts to move through this process is to stay engaged with local 12-step support groups. Uh, Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous, we have a very rich tradition in our community of those 12-step programs. And there are many groups. There's meetings every day. There are people there to help. And to help with the discouragement that comes as a, just as a normal part of life. The setbacks and, and not getting what we want exactly when we want it. Uh, within those 12-step groups is the kind of support that will help somebody through the ups and downs of this recovery process. Staying sober might be a pretty straight line. Uh, staying, uh, staying abstinent and having the desire to drink or use might be something that just happens pretty automatically over time. But some of the things in terms of becoming a part of our community again and job and family and relationships those are, you know, those, that's a minefield 
for, for normal people, uh, much less somebody who, you know, has had these issues and perhaps, uh, uh, you know, has created additional problems for themselves and barriers. But, you know, to stick with the process, be a part of 12-step recovery groups that can provide that support and encouragement as the ups and downs of life happen. Um, there's an old saying in, you know, in AA is that uh, we have to learn to live life on life's terms mm. without drugs or alcohol. And that sounds pretty simple, but it is absolutely not easy. Uh, especially for folks who have experienced what people experience in addiction. Most of the people who are coming into recovery today have experienced a lot of trauma. Uh, there has been a lot of death around them, traumatic experiences in terms of relationships, going to jail, going to prison. It is a very different uh, client population than it was when I got into this business, you know, 30, you know, 40 years ago. Uh, these folks have are young, but they've experienced an awful lot of hard, hard living, and they've seen a lot of things that are very difficult. Uh, and as a result of that, again, the support that they're going to need is is uh, extensive. It's available, uh, and it's ongoing. Uh, and we're we we and they have to be patient with this process. Absolutely. And I like that word that you keep using, even for people not in recovery, being patient with the process is something difficult. So I can't imagine when that uh, additional difficulty is like loaded on to someone who's been through so much. A lot of our folks, when they're trying to recover, they're trying to figure out how am I going to pay my court fines? I can't get a driver's license until I pay my court fines. I owe this much money to get my driver's license back and I'm struggling to find a part-time job to accomplish that. Mm. Uh, and, and I don't want to live with my, I don't want to sleep on the couch at my brother-in-law's house. Uh, I, I'd like to have my own place that was in a safe, safe environment around safe people. You know, it's very, very basic and very complicated uh, in the beginning. And um, I don't know how anybody can be successful trying to just do it on their own. I, I think we need community. And that's been another thing that has been so encouraging is people like yourself, uh, a, a number of these employers uh, in our community that have taken an interest uh, in our recovering clients. Um, because in, in our beginning, it was pretty much always one recovering person trying to help another. So to see the community start to embrace and people who are not just a part of our agency start to help our clients, whether it be housing or jobs or education or vocational training. This is one of the things that's most encouraging for me uh, to be able to witness that taking place because well, there's yeah. a lot of people in our community has so much to offer to them. And just to speak on that, Ed, I mean, it's not because I think people like myself are particularly more generous. It's just that I have close family members. My friends have close family members and friends that have struggled with addiction in the past or are currently in recovery or we've lost people. Or so it just yes. becomes very real and you can't help but try to figure out how you can help. Yes. And again, that help has meant so much. Uh, again, I think that this this revival, this renewal that we're seeing in our community, uh, these community partners that have stepped forward to be a part of this, 
are really making the difference. The counseling center in terms of its counseling and treatment is not doing anything much different than what we've been doing over the last 30 years. Mm. It is all of the uh, ancillary activities that's happening around our recovering people uh, that is new and exciting and is making a world of difference. Absolutely. Ed, I want to summarize our, uh, just our conversation today with two questions. The first being, do you feel like the stigma of addiction is changing in our community? And the second is, how are those that aren't in recovery continue to better serve those that are? I think, I think the stigma has made a lot of progress. And for the reason that you mentioned, it's, it's hard to find anyone that doesn't know somebody who has struggled with addiction in their family or, or close friends, someone who has, who has died, uh, someone who has had you know, serious health problems as a result of addiction, or somebody in recovery. So all of that has been very helpful. On the negative side is addiction is still a very ugly disease. And so a lot of our, our folks that make such a difference in our community are only seeing the ugly side of our disease. If you're a first responder, if you're an emergency room worker, if you're working for the EMT squad, if you're a volunteer at the fire department, you know, you're seeing people with this disease in all of its ugliness. Uh, and a lot of times that creates more stigma because every day over and over again, you're seeing people who have overdosed or been in an automobile accident or, or some other kind of accident or, or somebody who's coming into the emergency room and they're being demanding because they're really there, you know, trying to seek a drug to make them feel better. Uh, we still have a lot of work to do with those people who are providing a lot of help to our, our, our clients or our, our potential clients, but they're seeing this disease in, a, in, its, in its rawest form. Uh, and so I would, I really, I think in the future, we're going to need to work a lot more with the first responders and again, the doctors and the nurses and the aides that are dealing with this disease uh, to help them see what recovery looks like. They don't get to see that part of it, you know, and to help them to, to be able to see that. And I think that for people who are like yourself and others that are trying to reach out and be helpful to our, our folks in recovery, the more that you do that and the more you're able to share that, that message starts to permeate within the community. Stigma starts from a real place. People see something very ugly, something very negative, and they make a, a judgment about that. So that starts in a real place, but so can uh, compassion and consideration and thoughtfulness uh, and tolerance can begin in that same way. As other people see someone saying, you know, I've been working with people who are in recovery. I've hired somebody in recovery, and here's my experience with that that sometimes might take a little courage because you might be talking to a group that you are in the minority in terms of how you view addiction. So it may take a little courage to step up and say, well, I hear what you're saying about, you know, these drug addicts, but let me tell you my experience that I've also seen. Mm -hmm. So again, folks like yourself that are having these positive experiences for them to again, to step forward and just within their family, within their social groups, within their interactions, you know, at church, to be able to say, here's what I've seen. Uh, here's the other side of this. 
Uh, I know people in recovery, and let me tell you what's happened in their lives. Perhaps to invite people in recovery to come and talk to your church group, uh, to come and share with your, with, your, uh, uh, with your Kiwanis Club or Rotary Club or Alliance Club, to be able to say, this is what happens for people who are able to recover from this illness. You know, that this is not a bad person that needs to get good. This is a sick person that needs to get well. Absolutely. I think that sums it up really well. Ed, is there anything else you'd, you'd lo- like to uh, leave our audience with? Well, I, I think that, again, uh, a, a statement of gratitude uh, because I, you know, we know that our community was, you know, ground zero for the opiate epidemic, and we've been dealing with it longer than anybody in the nation has been dealing with it. But I also have always been, you know, I spent six years before I came to the counseling center at Children's Services, uh, working with foster parents and, and kids that were in abuse and neglect. And prior to that, I was in the mental health field here in, in our area. I have never seen a, an area, a region that has been more devastated by some of these problems, but at the same time have always been able to rise to the occasion to be able to address these things eventually. I think we're very resilient. I think that we have a lot of very good people. I think the fact that people have, that have been so harmed by, you know, by poverty or illness or uh, addiction, I think those people, as a result of that, have become very resilient. And if we are able to continue to work toward a common goal, I know that our people in our area will accomplish things that will be far beyond what is being accomplished in other communities. I've already seen that. I have already seen our people do more around this, these issues than anywhere else, and oftentimes doing it with less resources than what other communities have. So I, I feel very strongly about the people of our community in terms of their, their willingness and their ability. We have a lot of very good, loving people that have been willing to share that, even in times where perhaps it was difficult for them to be able to do it because of the way that some of these problems have impacted them. And I appreciate you communicating that. And I feel like as you all at the Counseling Center have gotten more national news coverage and those things we keep hearing, these describers that are so much different than what we've heard from larger media outlets in the past where they're describing Portsmouth as resilient, as, as like a proud community, as a community that's united. And um, even Tim Wolf from the TCC board that said in his WSAVZ interview when they asked him how we were going to recover, recover from this COVID-19 crisis that our people yeah. are resilient and entrepreneurial and uh, unified. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, uh, and again, I think that because the cavalry has never come to rescue us, we are not looking over the horizon waiting. It's like, we got to do this and we can do this. And in fact, we have done it in the past. We just need to apply those same kind of resources and energy to do it. And we will. And, uh, and, and again, there's evidence of that everywhere. Now, a lot of times, people in our community, we don't know what's going on in other communities. We don't know how much we're accomplishing until perhaps you go somewhere else and you ask, 
where do I get drug and alcohol treatment? And they look around and say, well, I don't know. You'd have to go someplace else. We don't have anything like that here. You know, we're, you know, we don't want to take for granted all the wonderful things that have been created in our community that just don't even exist anywhere else. And, and again, for that, I'm very proud of the Counseling Center and our community partners for making that happen. Absolutely. Ed, thank you so much for joining us this morning and looking forward to um, the future, like what the organization you've been such a key part of is, uh, is going to do, because I know it's big things. So Very proud of them all. And again, thank you. And thank you for the work you're doing. What's up, Legends? I wanted to end this episode by personally saying thank you for supporting this project. If you like what we're doing, just take a moment and hit that subscribe button. And please, please, please leave us a review down below. Those help us out way more than you probably realize in getting stories like Ed's out to more listeners. And hey, if you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Instagram. My handle is at ComebackCityKid. I create a lot of content around what I'm learning from talking to amazing people like Ed. And the entire purpose of this podcast is to give local entrepreneurs uh, insight on how to be successful in their small town by just talking to exceptional small town people. So I'd love to hear your feedback and know that you're listening. So reach out at Comeback City Kid Instagram. Hope to talk to you soon. Take care.